Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. This is Carrie Peffley, and I'm in the philosophy department at Bethel. I'm Anne-Marie Koistra, and I'm in the history department. And today we are joined by Dr. Wayne Rosa, who is our art lecturer um, for the humanities program and has been giving us lectures on Renaissance art and Baroque art. And he'll be joining us today to talk a little bit about those art lectures, some of his favorite works of art, thinking about art, and thinking about reading art and reading about art. Well, Dr. Rosa, you are joining us here during the interim time period of Bethel University, and you've lectured so far. Well, why don't you tell us what you've lectured on so far? Uh, Well, on Renaissance art and Baroque art. And what are some of the highlights? uh, Well, what would you say are some of the key themes in Renaissance versus Baroque art? Well, let's see. Uh, Well, Renaissance, of course, uh, the whole idea of a rebirth, idea of recovering antiquity but understanding it through a Christian lens and developing a synthesis um, of, of those kind of worldviews um, is probably central. And then stylistically and in, and in inventing so much new things in the world, the perspective mm-hmm. and um, new sciences, new optics, uh, all, all of that just coming, you know, totally changed from the medieval way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. And then what about Baroque? Um, How would you distinguish yeah, that, the, say, like, from like, the Yeah, like this morning, for example, in the Baroque lecture, I used the word tenebrism and said it was sort of like the Renaissance chiaroscuro. Sure. And Dan Ritchie asked me if I could give a more definite definition of tenebrism. <laughs> and I said it's basically a chiaroscuro on steroids. Oh, nice. And that's my might be my, my minimal definition of the Baroque. It's the Renaissance on steroids, on steroids. Wow. having dealt with Protestants. <laughs> Wonderful. That's fantastic. I know you also talked a little bit about the difference between Renaissance art in the South and in the North. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To what extent was that also influenced by the difference in what they had, what their religious traditions were? Yeah. The, I mean, those in, those differences are really interesting. I mean, partly it's a longstanding um, difference of influence. I mean, I mean, the North... Even though the Greeks and Romans went far north, it, it wasn't a Mediterranean culture. Right. Um, and uh, everything from a different climate to a different sensibility. So the north sort of never had that adoration of idealization, Greco-Roman culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so their whole approach to the figure, their comfort level with the body, um, their diffidence about myth, um, the mythic ways of thinking, um, all those are, those are like main sort of mental structural things that are very different and led to different ways of making art. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to jump in and ask a question about, um, as you think about the different paintings you talked about with regard to the Southern Renaissance, is there one that you could uh, tell our listening audience about or highlight from the Southern Renaissance? As, and then just talk a little bit about what we would be seeing if we saw this and what you would want people to notice about it. Yeah. Um, well, maybe if I had to choose one that could summarize sort of all the elements, um, yeah. I might choose Raphael's paintings in the Stanza mm-hmm. della Signatura, um, which is a sort of cheating way of doing your question because that's really, it's, it, it's actually four major paintings and a whole lot of details on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, but in those paintings, it's a summa of thought, kind of of Christian theology, mm-hmm. of the revival of Greek thought, of philosophy, of all the liberal arts. 
and all presented with idealized figures in a idealized space full of order and balance and proportion and beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the works I didn't bring into the lecture, but on the other two sides, one is Mount Parnassus, the Mountain of the Gods, where they could get at all the nine muses, all the inspiration, uh, poetry, music, all the arts mm-hmm. uh, are celebrated there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that so that that's is literally a summary of the Renaissance project. Okay. Um, yeah. Nice. Well, and then of course there's the obvious next question, which is, what about for the Renaissance in the North? If there's one piece that you would have um, folks look at, what they would mm-hmm. be seeing, and how that speaks to some of the themes you talked about. Uh, yeah, that, let's see. I mean, the, the one I actually would choose, I didn't lecture on, uh, which is Jan van Eyck's Ghent altarpiece. Oh. Just because it has so many parts. The reason I don't lecture on it in the, in the one hour humanities lecture is it, it, it takes an hour to do that. that and piece. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that. So uh, you're going to have to describe that one for me. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, it's a multi-paneled, very large altarpiece. Um, uh, when the wings are closed, it shows angels and angelic music and Christ uh, enthroned in the center um, with wings of Adam and Eve okay. um, sort of facing in, little quarter panels above them of uh, of um, the, the sons of Adam and Eve, you know, Cain and Abel. Yeah, yeah. right on. <laughs> little blank, sorry. That's okay. Um, you know, of Cain and Abel offering their sacrifices and then of the murder. Okay. And, and so he sort of uses Adam and Eve and then the two sons different sacrifices and then the murder of a first brother to a second to set the thing in motion. Yeah. Uh, and then when you open them, you have this big apocalyptic vision of the mystic lamb of the new Jerusalem, the new uh, earth with yeah. all those worshipers, all these martyrs. Um, so it's very encyclopedic kind of Genesis through Revelation. Right. Um, in the meantime, it's painting hundreds of figures, some portrait-like, all that kind of careful, careful realism. Yeah. As well as set in a visionary landscape with deep perspective. So all mm-hmm. the things they love visually are packed into that. And do you feel yourself an affinity for one kind of Renaissance mm-hmm. versus another geographically? Uh, that is a good question. Um, I started my scholarly career to do late medieval, early Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Ended up doing my master's thesis on a northern painter named Roger van der Weyden. Mm-hmm. So I was very drawn to that. And I, and I think on some level that linked to my own Protestant upbringing and, and way of thinking. Uh, I then gravitated to being a modernist. And, and now as I go back, um, I, I honestly love both worlds because they're both interested in very different dimensions of of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I love the Italian embrace of, of, of the body of mm-hmm. us existing in space and time and um, deep emotion. Um, but then you have to kind of love that northern um, esoteric symbolism and theology. Mm-hmm. And just the simplicity and, you know, landscapes, simple life. Yeah, yeah, right. The embrace of the everyday, mm-hmm. um, which Italy doesn't really, well, I mean, they do. There are some Italian painters that do, but it's it's deep in the DNA of the north. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I said in lecture, it makes sense that the Protestant Reformation happened there. Mm-hmm. Um all the seeds were there for this embrace of the, you know, the everyday believer as a saint. Mm-hmm. Um, direct, you have direct access to God or Christ right. through the Scripture. Um, yeah, yeah, less hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you speak 
very eloquently about art to us all the time in the humanities program. And, but most of our lectures are on books. So I was just wondering, this, you can tell me this is a dumb question or you don't want to answer it. <laughs> um, but I was wondering what books are some of your favorites related to these paintings that you talk about? Um, art history, um, what drives you in terms of books on, on art? Uh, yeah, no, actually that, that's a good question because the relation of, you know, word to image and text to picture, um, is, is really important and complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I do, I do, I do often come back to saying first and foremost, the image is a text. Mm -hmm. Um, although then I immediately retract that because certain postmodern theorists, um, then think you don't actually need to get the pictorial. Um, or the imago. Mm -hmm. um, but it is a kind of text. Um, Post and Becknell used to make fun of me when they team taught and say, you never have to bring any notes. You just look, look at the slides and describe them. Um, <laughs> well, it's a text, and, and they're loaded. And the, the more literate you are, the, the more you read there. Um, at the same time, the, the visual tradition never emerged independent of a verbal um, there was always commentary. M many, many, many visual works were based on verbal texts. Mm -hmm. So my kind of first level of book text is often the kind of primary source. So mm -hmm. um, painters working off of Homer or mm -hmm. off of Dante or, you know, that kind of thing. And you need to know those texts. Right. Um, and then from there, there's just really useful tools, monographs on artists, um, so you can get a sense of their whole career beginning to end. Even though monographs are now unfashionable, I, I think they're still really valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and I myself am very fond of theory and criticism um, because I think the way art filters down ultimately is first through response, through critical response, um, which gets elaborated into theory. And then art historians come in and try to collaborate it with documents and facts and archives. Yeah. So it really is a mix. I think to do my own method in art history is very eclectic. For that very reason, because I think art's coming out of so many sources. So I read a lot of texts from novels to poems to philosophy to theory to monographs. That makes sense. Well, and you uh, lectured just recently on Baroque art, and we did the same kind of deal where you went through some examples from the Southern Baroque and then chose some examples from sort of Northern Baroque painters and artists. And one place where you link very explicitly the text to what we're seeing is with St. Teresa. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, um, it's one of my favorites, let's be honest, mm -hmm. when you get yeah. to that one. Um, and so I wonder if you could just spend a few minutes um, telling our listening audience, who maybe didn't get a chance to hear you in lecture this morning, um, some of your observations about that piece. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, first, in terms of St. Teresa herself, in a way, she's a very Baroque figure. She, what she's really coming out of is a holistic experience, which was deeply felt, it's mystical, it's visionary, but it's not irrational, and so it can be articulated, which she did. She, she wrote her visions out. Mm -hmm. And students actually read Julian Norwich, and so even though they don't read St. <clears throat> Teresa, yeah. they do have some exposure to how this kind of mystical right experience then. could be mm -hmm. experiential and yet still very rational and theological. Mm -hmm. okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, Julian's line about the acorn, like literally... Yeah. rerouted part of my life. That's so oh, wow. profound. Um, so, so yeah, so so when Bernini gets that commission, I mean, he's dealing with a, 
you know, a, a person and a sensibility and a set of texts that he can draw from. And he's drawing from all of them um, very much. Um, he, he himself, he, he's not a mystic, but he's a very sensual visionary person. Uh, and so I, I, I've always thought he kind of personally resonated with this character, even though he's he's actually somewhat more secular in his sensibility. Um but I think the chance to use the figure and the face to express what's uh, invisible in mystical vision um, and what's verbal in those texts, mm-hmm. to bring those together and to be so openly um, erotic slash spiritual um, and to, to not see the erotic and the spiritual as dichotomies, mm-hmm. but actually as um, collaborative, one the metaphor for the other and somewhat vice versa. Um, what he brings together there is 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 really amazing, um, and and intensely emotional, and yet part of that baroque idea of decorum. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, oh, go ahead, Carrie. I th- I just think that particular sculpture always makes me excited because I teach a lot of the medieval mystics, mm-hmm. and while um, I don't t- teach Teresa very frequently, and Julian doesn't do this quite as much. Um, but the other mystics talk so explicitly about, and they use these metaphors when they're trying to describe, you know, how do you systematize? How do you describe the mystical experience? They just have to rely on these metaphors. Mm-hmm. And so, so many of them go for erotic metaphors or metaphors of drunkenness. And that's consistent mm-hmm. across all, all the monotheistic traditions. So whether you're reading Al Ghazali or Maimonides out of the Islamic or Jewish tradition, or whether you're reading Catherine of Siena or uh, Teresa of Avila. So I love that particular image because it just captures what all these mystics are trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things, if, if I live long enough to, to research this, and maybe it's, maybe it's been done and you could even point me to the source, but um, is the fact that the, the, the vast majority of figures that work this way were women. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's been talked about. Um, some have said that that's there's more of a feminine sensibility. Others have said, no, women simply were not allowed to be educated um, and and almost, uh, you know, transferred their, their emotions into an experience that was acceptable mm-hmm. for them to have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that dynamic, and when I look at some of the male mystics, uh, do they ever bring in as much the, the uh, erotic metaphor and the sensual? Some of uh, them do, but you're right, not as much. So I can think immediately Al Ghazali does. He talks, um, he talks a lot about that. Hmm. But the others tend to go more a kind of a way of knowledge in terms of right. thinking about mysticism. Right, and spiritual disciplines. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, there's a really rich field to explore there. Yeah. When Al Ghazali does it, is it, is the erotic imagery leveraged off the, the female experience or the male experience? The male. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. See, now Wayne has something to read. Yeah. Yeah. But right. he's the only one off the top of my head that I can think of that is yeah. male and doing that. Well, and one of the features that you talked about, too, with regard to St. Teresa that comes through in some of the other pieces that you talk about and maybe stands out just because I'm in a weird place, maybe, or just in that place is the spectator. The spectators that are watching mm-hmm. the ecstasy, mm-hmm. and even going back to Giotto with the lamentations, there's that space, right? Yeah, in the right. the fresco for the onlooker to be kind of part of the experience, right? And I think that's an interesting turn 
in art in mm-hmm. this period. It, it is. Like in the medieval period uh, with icons, mm-hmm. I, I think the icon writer did have a sense of, of the viewer, mm-hmm. but not as a viewer, but right. more as a, um, a, a, a contemplative. Mm-hmm. So knowing that the icon would be used by someone literally um, as sort of a, a membrane of prayer into the spiritual um, whereas with Jadawan, there begins to be this awareness of, of us sort of as narrative individuals in a, mm-hmm. in a different sense, um, sort of almost what becomes a Cartesian dichotomy that they're aware the viewer is standing outside the work looking into the work, mm-hmm. but they are part of that narrative. And so there's a dialogue between pictorial space and our space. Mm-hmm. And they start mm-hmm. to set us up to, to experience that. Well, and one of the paintings that students will see this week at the MIA is Rembrandt's Lucretia. Yeah. And I don't know if you want to say anything about that painting or why it's such a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, that painting is amazing. Um, And I I guess in a nutshell, why I think it's such a masterpiece is relates to Rembrandt's total achievement, which is he he really moved from being a painter uh, who sees reality from the outside and is depicting scenes to being a painter of our interior experience by way of depicting a scene. And that's a really huge shift. Um, And so what he's really painting in Lucretia, I think, is her internal experience, both the violence, the rape, the shame, the struggle of honor, the willingness to give up her own life, um, the waste of of what she will not ever see in life. It's like that painting is is her moment of realization of all of that, of the injustice of that, of the loss of that, <clears throat> and the way that her mouth almost trembles and her chin almost trembles um, as the light goes out of her eyes. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he's painting the, the phenomena of that as opposed to, like, a snapshot of that. Um, yeah. And that ability to paint the interior human experience is what the best of the broke's about. Mm-hmm. And it's also the seed of the modern individual. Yeah. And it is so emotive. I can see Anne-Marie here, like, tearing up a little bit. Every time you lecture about Lucretia, I tear up. And every time I'm in front of the image in the MIA, I tear up. Mm -hmm. It's it's a Mm -hmm. profoundly moving piece. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly also what Baroque music does to me. So there's something about Baroque art and Baroque music (laughs) that, like, move me deeply. It's a good thing you're lecturing on Baroque music. That's right. (laughs) Well, you know, I start the Baroque lecture talking about the Mm Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent. And the the call from the Council of Trent for the artists Mm -hmm. was to learn how to employ your medium dramatically, illusionistically, theatrically, to make your viewer um, feel and experience what these holy texts are about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it applies to non-holy texts as well. But um, And so they really, are the, they really are the generation that figured out how to use space, light, shadow, etc. Um, in a new way that um, confronts you, mm-hmm. that seduces you, that reaches out to you. Mm-hmm. Um, they learned harmonies in music and rhythms, um, light and shadow, in ways that just very um, um, subjectively like the French Baroque is far more rational. It appeals to your intellect to think this mm-hmm. through. Um, but the Italian Baroque and the Northern Baroque, Spanish Baroque, are much more emotive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's feel and experience this first and then reflect on it later. Mm-hmm. Is there a painting at the MIA, and this doesn't have to be Renaissance or Baroque, is there a painting that 
even if you're there to see one thing, you always make a stop to see this other thing. Um, yeah, well, two, except now they, they, one of them's gone, but there was a third century Korean pot that had such metaphysical presence that every time I went to the MA, I went to see it first and, and to get centered. Um, and now it's gone, and I don't know what happened to it. They traded it off or what. But in terms of this Renaissance Baroque discussion, um, people should go down to the rotunda in the new edition and look at contemporary artist Bill Viola. Mm. Big HD screen. It's, it's from his series Oceans Without a Shore. Mm. And it, there's three three women of three generations, older woman, younger, and a girl, who are emerging in slow motion out of shimmery darkness. They emerge through a wall of water into full, brilliant color. They look about, then they turn and go back into the shadows. It's amazing. It is amazing, and it's totally in the spirit of the Baroque, mm-hmm. of, of, of this kind of mysterium. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, Viola is, is literally reusing a lot of Baroque imagery in his later work um, because it does this thing we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. And then, that, that would be a great piece yeah. for the students to go look at after they're broke. We, will. we should recommend that. Uh, yeah. yeah. And what you said there was yet another one? Well, the first was the Korean vase. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, and, those and are the, the two. And okay. the Viola piece. Mm-hmm. Um, Got it. So, okay, that would be what you would suggest we see at the MIA. Is there any further reading that you would suggest? If somebody's now gotten really interested in thinking about Baroque art, what would you recommend to mm-hmm. an interested listener? Uh, I, I, I think I would kind of scan through and have the person decide which artist they'd like to investigate more mm-hmm. and then go to monographs of that person. Okay. Um, there's there's some really great research on, on Rembrandt, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I have well, a question, by the way. I'm going to interrupt with a question about Rembrandt. I have heard that Rembrandt is the most um, graffitied or most um, vandalized artist of mm-hmm. all time. Is that true? Is I, that a rumor? I, I, I don't know, actually. Okay, I've you never, can't verify that. I've never heard that. that. Okay. Um, well, I'll have to Google that later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay, sorry. So monographs, great ones on Rembrandt. Yeah, yeah. And and, and part of that, and, you know, especially if we're talking about the little bit more of the art layperson, um, I think the beauty of a monograph is it gives you a visual catalog of the artist's whole mm-hmm. body of work first. And I think before you dip into reading, um, getting that in your in your eye's memory um, is, is really good. And then typically monologues have sort of, one-page commentaries on a whole lot of those works. Um, and from there, you can go to a deeper book that goes into biography and you know and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'll just say as a, a fan of half-price books, not that I'm trying to pitch for them, but like you can actually get really decent yeah. um, art books there. Mm-hmm. That It's nice just to page through them even to look at the pictures if you don't even want to mm-hmm. read through the material. But um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to change your terminology a little bit. Of, the pictures, of, sorry. Of you can first you can read the pictures, right, um, right, and not look of at them because our culture thinks of looking at something is you aim your eyeballs at it, you take it in, you you name it, right. and you've got it. Um, one of my favorite books is a book called "Forgetting the Seeing is Forgetting the Name of the Thing Seen," mm-hmm. um, because you have to really visually scan and mm-hmm. visually embrace and experience. The same way you would read a poem slowly, right? You have to look at a work of art mm-hmm. slowly and long, 
Um, yeah. In aesthetics, I have my students read Jeanette Winterson's mm-hmm. Art Objects, Art Objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she that. talks about the fact that most of us treat art as a peep show instead of a love affair. So we right. scan, walk by, and keep moving. But it needs to be treated like a relationship. Nice. Long, yeah. Yeah. lasting. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Are there things at the MIA that you like to pause at before? Like, even if we go for Renaissance, like, you have to. I'm asking this to Carrie now. Yeah. So, I mean, when we're not going for Renaissance and Baroque art, I do like to pause at the Lucretia, the Rembrandt Lucretia. Um, and then actually the, the Bill Viola piece, it was some of my art mm-hmm. students that brought it to me. And so I like to go down there and scan that. I also just love Monet. And so I like walking around the Impressionist art galleries. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's good. And I, of course, um, as a historian, really enjoy the little local art Mm -hmm. um, that shows sort of Mm -hmm. the early history of Minneapolis and depicts like some of the early figures in Minneapolis and Minnesota history. And those aren't maybe necessarily as great in terms of works of art, but interesting from a historical Mm -hmm. perspective. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not so interested in the category of great. I mean, there's there's a reality to that, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it's just more interesting to say what what does any uh, creatively made thing say? Yeah. Um, those kind of like not and I, like I'm, when you say it, I'm picturing some of those 19th century American landscapes, yeah. some of those early limner portraits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are often untaught, self-taught yeah. artists, but they have a way of capturing mm-hmm. um, a quality that's exactly the sensibility of the American imagination at that time. Well, and I love the weather vanes maybe for some of the same reasons. Yeah. yeah. I just, I love those. I could st- stand there and look at that, those for like, you know, several, several minutes. And yeah. They're beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, that's mm-hmm. craftsmanship. I like, I like craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Well, should we move to the nightstand question? Let's move to the nightstand question. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wayne Rosa, what is on your nightstand for <laughs> reading for maybe pleasure? Yeah. Um, well, I have two quote nightstands. Okay. Um, mm. You know, one is bedside for reading, you know, at night, literally before Good. I go to sleep. Uh, the other is studio side. Okay. Um, where I also do reading that's really important to me. So yeah, I actually went and looked and wrote wrote them down because I knew when you asked me that I would blank. Um, <laughs> uh, nightstand. Um, lately, I just finished Ross King's biography called Mad Enchantment. And it's a biography of Monet's late years hmm. when he did the giant water lily paintings. It's an astonishing biography. Hmm. Those those paintings um, have really affected me. It, and we're talking about this idea of long looking. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan Taylor and I once taught a January course in Paris. Um, and the first time I fully, truly saw one of those big water lily paintings um, was a literally a 45-minute look. Um, and by the end of 45 minutes, I finally saw the structure because he was accused of destroying structure and he mm-hmm. didn't. Um, but it's so subliminal. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, Ross King's uh, biography of late Monet's life is great. Um, I also just f- finished working through Jennifer Mayer's, she's a poet, uh, her anthology, Dark Alpha- Alphabet. And I'm almost through Mary Oliver's um, Devotions, mm-hmm. which is her last publication kind of a representation of her whole work. Um, 
And then when I'm having trouble sleeping and need something that will put me to sleep, <laughs> but that's really important, I've started working through Pope John Paul's Theology of the Body. Oh, um, oh yeah. Which is a four-volume, mm-hmm. uh, you know, monumental work. Mm-hmm. Links actually to what we're talking about, about Baroque art. He talks about the body and nudity and art as gift. Mm-hmm. Um, a very rich um, approach. I've yeah. always wondered about celibate popes anyway, talking about mm-hmm. that, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, link to that, and this is a, a form of my reading. I've, as I'm nearing retirement, I've begun a process of philosophical happy hours and dialogues with people, very, mm-hmm. very deliberately. And so, I've been in a dialogue with a Ohio artist named Michelle Arnold Payne. Um, she's sort of an atelier artist, does a lot with the figure and the female figure um, from a almost a Saint Teresa, mm-hmm. you know, kind of point of view. Uh, she's Catholic, so. She and I have been in a long email conversation, which is why I'm reading Pope John Paul, because she's Catholic. Um, And then in the studio, I've been reading uh, Gary Garrell's monograph of uh, Marsden, of of Bryce Martin, who's Mm. one of my favorite abstract painters. His work relates to work I'm doing right now um, on my big abstract soul paintings. Um, Did you say soul paintings? Soul, yeah. I'm, I'm making a lot of paintings on paper. They're two feet wide, six feet high. They're abstract, but they're about the nature of the soul. Hence, a lot of my other reading is about what different philosophers and theologians have thought the soul is or isn't. Right. Um, it's very confusing, really. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Uh, a philo- see, a philosopher has, <laughs> has agreed with that. Um, and I've been reading the diary of Eddie Hilsham. Um, I don't know who Eddie Hilsham is. Uh, she was a Jewish writer, um, lost her life in World War II the, from the Nazis. Um, extremely articulate about internal feelings and emotions and, a, and, and a quite a unique person, beautiful person, spiritual person, sexual person, um, a little bit um, quirky and often less than stable. Um, but it, but it's a really deep investigation into her own psyche by way of her diaries. Yeah, and our producer Sam is um, saying this is a great read, giving it a big thumbs up. Yes, mm-hmm. those of you looking for things to read. So that anyway, that's a few, a few of the things that I've been reading. Well, and I just would like to point out there is sometimes in the general public this sense that artists are just visual, but mm. I think what I like about you and like a lot of people in our department actually at Bethel is you guys really are very thinking mm-hmm. artists. Yeah. Yeah, and just the fact that like most of the time when we ask people what's on their nightstand, it's usually one book, and that's the case for me. I'll just be honest. But you've got like, I've got my nightstand for the bed. I've got my nightstand for the studio, and each one has basically a small pile of books. So yeah. I'll just point that mm-hmm. out to the audience as a way of saying we have a pretty high class art department. Yeah, we sure do. We do. we do, but but that's also pretty standard for contemporary true. artists. Mm-hmm. True enough. They are all readers, and they read widely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Carrie, what's on your nightstand? So I finally finished over winter break. Uh, Nora McInerney Permots. Her name is always so hard for me to say on this <laughs> podcast. Um, her laughing is okay, crying is cool too. Her memoir on loss and grief, hilarious, wonderful poignant i would recommend it so i just finished that and then began one of the books i haven't read in a while uh handmaid's tale by margaret atwood 
because I got for Christmas the Testaments. Oh, nice. And so I wanted to reread Handmaid's Tale before I, so I should move through that pretty quickly and then I'll be on to the Testaments. So that's, both of those are on my nightstand in addition to Margaret Atwood's Penelope ad, which I just saw in play form in November. And it was amazing. And I've never, I I can never really, I can return my copy to the library so you can check it out. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I mean, I have, I got it it for Christmas too. I got a lot of Margaret Atwood for Christmas. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, and I, yeah, I returned uh, after starting it, I returned to Karen Swallow Pryor's on reading well, where she goes through the different virtues with a different book. So she uses Huck Finn, I think, to look at the courage, uh, the virtue of courage. She uses The Great Gatsby to look at the um, virtue of temperance mm. and so on and so forth. And I'm actually enjoying that quite a bit. So I can recommend that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, this has been Bookish at Bethel. <laughs>